the top of page 13, you'll find Lord's Day 30 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Let's read these responsively. How does the Lord's Supper differ from the Roman Catholic Mass? The Lord's Supper declares to us that all our sins are completely forgiven through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. It also declares to us that the Holy Spirit grafts us into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, where he wants us to worship him. But the Mass teaches that the living and the dead do not have their sins forgiven through the suffering of Christ, unless Christ is still offered for them daily by the priests. It also teaches that Christ is bodily present under the form of bread and wine, where Christ is therefore to be worshipped. Thus, the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and a condemnable idolatry. Who should come to the Lord's table? Those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ, and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. Hypocrites and those who are unrepentant, however, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Should those be admitted to the Lord's Supper, who show by what they profess and how they live that they are unbelieving and ungodly? No, that would dishonor God's covenant and bring down God's wrath upon the entire congregation. Therefore, according to the instruction of Christ and his apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such people by the official use of the keys of the kingdom until they reform their lives. Amen. Let's go to the Lord now and ask for the Spirit's help. Gracious Father, send your Spirit now upon each and every one of us that we might willfully receive the teachings of the Holy Scriptures laid down by Christ and the prophets and the apostles. We pray, Father, that we would receive it joyfully and that that by the Holy Spirit's power it would be applied to us powerfully. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Today's Catechism Sermon seeks to clarify two main things. First, what kind of meal the Lord's Supper is, which we've been doing, but we're going to do today by uh, distinguishing it and comparing it with the Roman Catholic Mass. And the second thing that we want to clarify is what kind of person should come and eat of this meal. And we'll discuss that by seeing what kinds of things are required for us to come in a worthy manner. Basically, what we're summarizing here today is that the Lord's Supper is a sacred meal that offers Jesus's true body and blood, which is eaten spiritually by faith, 
and that this is to be done by repentant sinners. It's a meal for sinners who have nevertheless come to trust in the Lord Jesus and are walking in repentance and are coming to eat of the body and blood of Jesus Christ in a spiritual manner. First, we learn that this is God's meal and not our own. It's God's meal, not our own. Which means God tells us how we are to eat of it and what's happening when we do eat of it. He's the one who dictates what this sacred meal actually is. We are not the ones who bring our own opinions to to bear upon it. There are, of course, different views in different Christian traditions about all kinds of different teachings. The the catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, almost never calls out those different views by name. But it does so here out of a grave concern about the Mass. This was, of course, one of the the main subjects contended for in the Protestant Reformation. So there's a historical reason for it being in the catechism as well. But the teaching remains true, and it is a warning for us. And I I want to issue this warning to those who have grown up in some form of broad evangelicalism. If you have come to embrace what some people believe to be a higher liturgy, a more reverent approach to worship, this can accidentally become just a, a stop along the way to higher and higher and higher liturgy still, until you suddenly are not worshiping according to Scripture at all, but find yourself worshiping at the altar of the Mass. It has happened before. This is meant to be a stern warning to those who have come into a more reverent form of worship. You are not going to find greener pastures in the Roman Catholic Communion. Question and answer 80 calls this Mass a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and a condemnable idolatry. Now to show that this is the case, I'm going to read several sections of the Catechism of the Catholic Church so that you can hear directly from the source that we are not making this up or misreading the teachings of the Roman Catholic Communion. And as we work through some of these statements, then I'll respond with Scripture so that we find ourselves planted First line of teaching. I'm going to give us three lines of teaching that are related to what the Catechism brings up, to what the Heidelberg Catechism brings up. Uh, Because there's a lot that the Roman Catholic Catechism says about the Mass and the, the Eucharist. So we're going to look at three things. First line of teaching is that the bread and the wine transform into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Here's the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Quote, It is by the conversion of the bread and wine into Christ's body and blood that Christ becomes present in this sacrament. And again, it goes on. By the consecration of the bread and wine, there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. This change, the Holy Catholic Church has fittingly and properly called transubstantiation. And there, there, the catechism there is quoting from the Council of Trent, which was the Roman Catholic Church's official response to the Protestant Reformation. And this uh, codified 
in a major way the teaching that they call transubstantiation, which means the substance of the bread and the wine transformed. Now, we agree that Scripture makes the claim that we truly eat the body and blood of Jesus Christ. I hope that's clear to you from the last couple of weeks teaching on this sacrament. What is truly offered to us and what we truly eat is the crucified body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. It doesn't get, you know, our view of the sacrament doesn't get any higher. We believe what Scripture teaches on this. We agree. But we believe that we eat this meal by faith and through the Holy Spirit. How does that happen? That's the mystery of the sacrament. But that is why it is so important for us that we say or affirm in one way or the other in our communion liturgy that we lift our hearts up to the Lord. That's where he is. We don't call him down to the table. We don't call him down to the bread and to the wine. The spirit lifts us up to the presence of Jesus Christ and we consume him by faith, not with our teeth. We are eating bread and wine, drinking wine with our teeth. We're not eating Jesus Christ with our teeth. If we're going to get crass about it, just to show what we're saying, we've got to draw the lines. But the Mass teaches that Jesus is indeed consumed through the mouth and the teeth because the bread and the wine have changed their substance. The claim is that the outward form remains looking like bread and wine. The outward form has not changed. So it looks like the wafer. It looks like wine. It tastes and smells like those things. But the substance, the inner core, if we might speak that way, has truly transformed into the flesh and blood of Jesus. We take that to be a grave misunderstanding and reading of Jesus' words on the night that he instituted the supper. He said, this is my body. He did not say, this becomes my body. He's using sacramental language, as we've learned in previous weeks. He's not using the language of transformation. Second line of teaching is that the Eucharist re-offers the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to the Father to accomplish the forgiveness of sins. Here's the Catholic Catechism again. In the Eucharistic sacrifice, quote, the Church presents to the Father the offering of His Son which reconciles us with Him. We need to hear that teaching very clearly. The Roman Catholic teaching is that the church, through the ministry of the priests, offers Jesus' sacrifice back to the Father, and that this action of the priests reconciles us with Him. So redemption is being accomplished in the sacrifice of the Mass. The Catholic Catechism goes on. It says the Eucharist is thus a sacrifice because it represents, that is, it makes present, the sacrifice of the cross. We believe that this understanding of the Lord's Supper is not just a little off from Scripture's teaching, 
but it confounds the teaching of Scripture. It opposes the teaching of Scripture. The Supper does not accomplish our redemption. Christ has accomplished our redemption 2,000 years ago. It's done. Now the Holy Spirit applies the saving benefits of Jesus Christ to us. And one of the means of this grace is the Supper of the Lord. But the sacrifice is done. He offered His body and blood already. He took the the everlasting value of His sacrifice up into heaven with Him, and it is laid there everlastingly, never to be re-offered again. So if we are going to use the language of sacrifice at all when we come to the Lord's table, we talk about it only as a sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise. And that's what Eucharist really means. Eucharist means thanksgiving comes from the Greek word for giving thanks. Now, we may use that word in that way if we mean this is our sacrifice of thanks. Giving to the Lord for the grace that has already been poured out upon us and the sacrifice which has already been accomplished. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that the cup of blessing and the bread that we break is a participation in the body and blood of Christ. We are participating with what he has already accomplished. The Mass tells us a falsehood that in this act, his sacrifice is being re-offered to the Father through the ministry of the priests. A third line of teaching. Since the Eucharistic elements have become Jesus' flesh and blood, they are therefore to be adored and worshipped. There is a heading in the Catholic Catechism, and the heading says... Eucharistic worship. And here's what it says. In the liturgy of the Mass, we express our faith in the real presence of Christ under the species of bread and wine by, among other ways, genuflecting, which is this kind of a bowing of the head, or bowing deeply as a sign of adoration to the Lord. The Catholic Church has always offered and still offers to the sacrament of the Eucharist The cult of adoration, cult is here just meaning worship, not only during Mass, but also outside of it, reserving the consecrated hosts with the utmost care, exposing them to the solemn veneration of the faithful, and carrying them in procession. And so if there is Eucharistic elements that are left over that the priests have not consumed, they are to put it in a a box that is called the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is to be laid in an open space, and at least in some parishes, you know, I'm I'm assuming this has to do more with cities where there's uh, more resources and parish priests are more available. The tabernacle is then open for the faithful to come, and even on other days of the week, to bow before the Eucharistic elements to adore Jesus Christ through them. But brothers and sisters, Scripture is clear that Jesus Christ is in heaven. He is in heaven. His body and His blood are in heaven. And so that is the direction of all of our worship. Not toward bread or wine or any other created thing, all of which is idolatry. So I hope, I hope that you can see the, the logic of the Heidelberg Catechism on this. This is why we use such strong language and why we say that it is a condemnable idolatry 
We do not worship God according to the traditions of men. We do not worship God through means that he is not appointed. We certainly do not bow ourselves before created elements like bread or wine in order to worship Christ as though he is present in them. But Paul instructs us in Colossians 3, If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And we do that when we come to the table. We lift our hearts up to the Lord. Now, now that we've clarified that this is God's meal and not ours, and that it is to be eaten spiritually and according to Scripture and not according to our traditions, let's clarify briefly then what kind of person should come to partake. And uh, I'll just mention here, there's a lot we could go into here that I, I think is tied to the topic of church discipline. And that will come to the fore a little bit more clearly next week as we look at, at the topic of the keys of the kingdom. So some things that we won't get to in this Lord's Day, we will, we will look at next week. How should we come? Who should come, that is, and how? Who should come to the table and how? And the answer is, Repentant and believing sinners should come. Repentant and believing sinners. And it is the job of the church to do the best that she can through her ministers and elders to discern that the ones who are coming to the table are living in accord with this. That they have shown the fruit of true faith and repentance. And so it is right that that those who come to the table have made a commitment to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that the shepherds of Christ might know the sheep who are coming to partake. What we learn here is that the ground, the ground of your faith and the ground of your repentance is that the sacrifice of Jesus has been accomplished for all time. It is with that knowledge that we approach the Lord's table. That's how we should come. As we'll see in a moment, there is self-examination. There's a judgment that we put ourselves under. But the main ground of our faith, certainly the ground of our assurance in coming to the table, is that Christ beckons us to come because he has accomplished salvation for us. What does this posture look like? Question and answer 81 gives us three things to focus on. Displeasure, dependence, and desire. We should come displeased with ourselves. Not flagellating ourselves and whipping ourselves, whether literally or figuratively, but displeased with ourselves. First, First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 31, Paul says, If we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. He's telling the Corinthian church, there is a judgment that is facing this congregation with real consequences upon the congregation. He says, some of you are ill, some of you have died, because you will not come in a worthy manner to the Lord's Supper. And uh, you wouldn't be judged in this way if you were judging yourself. You must bring yourself under judgment, and that judgment will always come with displeasure. You will recognize every time you come to the Lord's table that you have fallen short of the glory of God. You're not worthy of the table, But he calls you, nevertheless, as a faith-filled and repentant sinner. 
So it is important to celebrate the supper, having first brought ourselves under the scrutiny of God's law, having freely confessed our sins to God, and having been reminded of his forgiveness. So one more reason why we ought to confess our sins together in our corporate worship services. He says, if we judge ourselves, then we won't be judged. So we should come with a dose of displeasure. We're not pleased with ourselves, but we have not loved God and our neighbor as we ought to. But secondly, question and answer 81 also highlights another aspect of our posture as we come to the table. Dependence on Jesus Christ. And this is just a synonym for faith. Faith and trust. We come trusting that our sins are pardoned once and for all. And that our remaining weaknesses are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. In other words, you are justified, that's your pardon. And you are being sanctified, that's your weaknesses being covered. And Jesus calls those who trust in that gospel truth to come to the table. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 28 and 29, it says, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. The Christians in Corinth had allowed all kinds of divisions to take over their observance of the Lord's Supper. The rich ate and drank excessively. And Paul says, some of you come to the table and get drunk. And you've desecrated the Lord's Lord's table. It's not even the Lord's Supper anymore for you. He, He tells them that. And others who have little come and they have nothing to eat. They're not allowed to participate at all. And Paul basically tells them that they've come to Jesus's table without thinking about Jesus at all. So he says to administer a test to yourself. And here's the test in verse 29. Have you discerned the body of the Lord Jesus in this meal? Not that the bread and the wine have transformed into it, but that the body of Jesus Christ is truly offered to you in it. Have you discerned this? That the grace of Jesus Christ in his crucified body is given to sinners. Have you seen this? Have you discerned this? That's the test he asks you to administer to yourself. Come in dependence on Christ being offered to you truly in this sacrament. Our communion liturgy says, Come believing sinner. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Come believing sinner. Come with dependence on Christ, resting in the Savior, and embracing His crucified body and shed blood for you. And finally... We come also with a desire. Question and answer 81 says that we ought to come desiring to live a stronger faith-filled life and a holier life. Repentance is not just being displeased with yourself and confessing your sins. Sometimes we get that twisted, that repentance is only these kind of negative-oriented things. Repentance is also the stirring up of godly living. As the Catechism is going to teach us in just a couple of weeks... Repentance is the putting to death of the old man and the making alive of the new. So we ought to stir up this desire within us with the Spirit's help. 
Because all believers have the desire to live godly lives, but that desire is often weak and cold. And the supper is for those who want to see that desire strengthened and fanned into flame. It's for that kind of person who knows that their desire is to live a godly life and they're not doing it the way that they want to. They're seeking to live a godlier life before the face of God and so they come to consume Jesus Christ by faith and be strengthened. Those who come to the table are also those who have begun to hate their sins, who have committed themselves to Christ's church and who have begun to repair broken relationships insofar as it is in their power to do so. It is a meal meant for repentant sinners. And when we come to this table, we ought to come with total confidence, not in ourselves, not in the one who administers it, please, not the one who administers it, not in your repentance, not in the quality of your repentance. That's not what you're trusting in. You're trusting in Jesus Christ and his once for all sacrifice on your behalf. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious and merciful Father, would you please now through the teaching of the holy apostles and the prophets establish your saints in the faith throughout our lives. Grant to us the grace to inwardly digest the food you have given to us and help us to instruct our children in your knowledge and fear until we all have reached complete maturity. All of this we ask in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord, who with you and the Holy Spirit are deserving of all honor and glory, world without end. Amen.